Thank you all for coming to this uh, platform performance on Follies. And forgive us for starting a few minutes late, but just to say we will carry on past four o'clock so you will get your full hour with our distinguished guests. Uh, I'm Matt Wolf, the London theater critic of the International New York Times. Uh, introductions I'll keep reasonably brief because I think we know who these people are. But to my far left, uh, an actor I first had the privilege of hearing sing and act Sondheim in this building next door, astonishingly in 1990, <laughs> in Sunday in the Park with George mm. when he played Seurat and won Olivier Fort Philip Weiss. And Jenny D, a quarter century ago, uh, <laughs> winning an Olivier for Harry Pippridge and Carousel, yeah. uh, also in this building, but next door. So, and they are playing Phyllis Roger Stone and Ben Stone, and we're very happy to have you with us. Uh, let's just start with your connection to God, as Stephen Sondheim is known in the business. Um, Philip, you worked with him 27 years ago. Have you done much since? What was, what's your sort of sense of him over the years? I've, uh, oh, I, I, I have done funny thing, the funny thing happened on the way to the forum in this mm -hmm. building. I've done Into the Woods. I've done, there's another couple I've done. I come to Sunday in the Park with George, Sweeney Todd, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of times and a concert version of this 10 years ago, I think. So yeah. that's sort of about it, I think. That's pretty good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty good. And Jenny, you were done putting it together, which is interesting because it's a Sondheim review, yeah. but it's not an actual book musical. Mm. So tell us about your connection to him. Uh, well, I suppose it started um, when I did Carousel because he was in the bar afterwards and <laughs> wanted to have a chat, <laughs> which was lovely. And of course, his sort of heritage was Rodgers and Hammerstein in some way. So he felt very close to the material of, of that musical. Um, then, yes, I actually did a, a very small production of Anyone Can Whistle, which was his piece with Arthur Lawrence, a very ambitious political piece, which we did at the Bridewell years ago. But I was really thrilled to have tried it, mm. tried to have a go at it, because it was complex mm. um, and demanding, uh, as he is. And so it was a good introduction to the real him. And then putting it together, I'd seen, yes, just after Carousel, I flew over to New York, just to see New York, mm. really. <laughs> and, uh, and at the Manhattan Theatre Club, Julie Andrews was playing mm. in Putting It Together. So I had to go and see that and just wept buckets. It was very much about relationships. And Julia McKenzie had put that book together, if you call it a book, it's mm -hmm. a sort of, it's a thread, but very strong thread. And so when we came to do it here, the director said to me, it hasn't really got a book, it's more like a concert. And I said, but we, we should do this thread that Julia McKenzie intended because then it links all the songs together and also there's a sort of tension between all the characters mm -hmm. which makes it a bit more important and very similar in that way to, to Follies, mm -hmm. which you might think is a concert, but it's, mm -hmm. it's all strung together. And interestingly, one of the songs from putting it together, as I recall, is Could I Leave You? Yes. So you'd had a previous experience of that extraordinarily vitriol-filled number that you delivered to your onstage husband yeah. in a previous show. Had you been tracking Follies as a project because of that? No, I had no idea it was coming at me. Um, in fact, I was rehearsing for Anthony and Cleopatra, which was going out to the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, when they asked me to come in, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm playing Cleopatra. I can't come. <laughs> I, I can't look sideways. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, it was a very important 
roll and I didn't want to make any mistakes with the limited time we had to get it ready for LA. Um, but they insisted that it was that date or never. Well, of course, mm. I wanted to do this. When I heard that also Dominic Cook was directing it, I thought, wow, that will be in very good hands. And uh, so I turned up and apologized for the fact that I hadn't read the script yet, but I did know the song, <laughs> thanks to putting it together. So I said, I can do that for you. And, you know, if anything else you want me to do. And I sort of sheepishly left thinking I should have really done something. And I said, I'm sorry, I can come back. When I get back from LA next week, I'll come back and do a better audition. And uh, Wendy Spawn sort of whispered to me, you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. But they then had to check with America. Right. So uh, that was a, a scary moment because mm. he might have said, no, I don't think so. Mm. And Philip, is it true that you got on a plane from Australia to yes, London they, to they secure this? My mm. London agent rang and said, would you would you like to do it? And straight away I said yes. There were a couple of other things I was, I think I was shooting a, a mini-series at the time. And I, I had a couple of days spare. And they said, would I video it? And I thought, oh, I can't, you can't do it. So I, I hopped in a plane and I flew over for two days and <laughs> uh, had a couple of hours with Dominic. Partly because you, you don't want to audition, you actually want to rehearse that's sort of what you'd want the yeah. audition to be. And I, I would like to say I was auditioning them, but that wasn't the case. They, they really, Nick Skilbeck and Dominic, but they were just wonderful. And, and what we did was we sort of worked. A mm. And uh, I suppose for Dominic, it was as much about finding out how you rehearse. Mm. And uh, so I had a lovely rehearsal period and I hopped on the plane and didn't know anything. You know, he said, I can't tell you just yet. And, uh, so I was back in Australia when I found out and, and I was very happy. And there were a number of serendipitous things that happened, I think, for us all to come together. I mean, when you think about getting this cast together, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And to be at the National, I, it's the only place that can do it on this scale with this amount of love and care mm -hmm. and this size orchestra. It's very hard to do it like this commercially, I should imagine, these days. Dominic, of course, and the material. Mm. And I think it's, it's no accident that Dominic has actually been able to do with, with what he's done with it because he's just done a film. He's mm. just done a big film. And he's brought all those skills together of filmmaking into this production, understanding how time works, how things cut together, because it's a very filmic script. This is the movie for people who don't, don't know of Ian McEwan's novel on Chesil Beach. On Chesil Beach, yes. Yeah, yeah. You've both mentioned Dominic Cook, who's the director of this production, who astonishingly, although having run the Royal Court, having you know, directed Arthur Miller, August Wilson brilliantly next mm. door, had never directed a musical before. I think he'd done an opera, he Opera, said. yes, opera, yeah. but never a stage no. musical. Did, as someone who's done many musicals, did that give you pause? Imelda was sitting in there and she said, you know, I'm a bit worried. It's like, you know, lots of little scenes. And I said, don't worry, Dominic Cook is brilliant. <laughs> it's going to be fine. But then we were on the seventh week of rehearsals, still fiddling around with scenes and having never run it. So usually you rehearse, you know, for most places, four to five weeks, and you do a run on the fourth week, and you start sort of refining it and then going back and doing another run and another run until you're ready to put it in front of an audience. 
Well, it came to the eighth week, and I think it was the Wednesday of the eighth week. But <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes, we'll do a run tomorrow. That'll be it. That'll be a run. And then we'll do another run. And Imelda was off for a couple of days because she, she had a, a, a bad cold. And uh, she came back and did the third run. So we did actually have three, but it wasn't until right at the end. Mm. And uh, miraculously, I had a feeling it might be that way because he's so, he, he loves to look at the detail. I mean, sometimes famous for saying God is in the detail. Mm. And yeah, that's what we did. And then so all the details held it. It's, it's a big, hefty monster of a book, actually. So the details were like wonderful sinews, little ligaments holding the tendons, holding the muscle together. Mm. It was great. You can but tell I've just been in physio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But Philip, after working, for instance, with Trevor Nunn, who's done so many mm. musicals as well as almost all the classics, yeah. what, what was Dominic's way of working quite different, quite particular? Uh, no, they all work differently, absolutely, mm -hmm. and that's the element of trust for an actor is that you have to actually give over to uh, that method of working because they're the only person that has the overview. Uh, although, because I'd been teaching and directing actually a little bit, uh, the first couple of weeks were quite difficult for me because I was slightly outside of it, slightly had a, a, a teaching and directorial eye until, of course, Dominic just happened to nail me on a couple of things, uh, bad habits really, immediately you don't worry about anything else and you have to put your head down and just concentrate on, on you. And uh, he had that ability with everyone just for you to focus on exactly what you were doing. Mm. And very, very specific notes, you know, that wonderful directorial thing of, so what is it, specific in your criticism, general in your praise, mm. is the best direction mm. the director can do just nail a very specific thing and then of course that has a, that has ramifications because if a director gives one little incisive note you can suddenly note yourself through the whole production mm. if someone praises something you've done you've ruined it right. <laughs> because then you go oh how do i replicate it yeah. what difference did it make for you though that you had done it in concert a decade ago well the difference in the concert was because so much of it was cut out mm. And I think when Cameron had done the production, th songs like The Road You Didn't Take were gone. Anything that God. was basically uh, Ben's breakdown was gone. Uh, they were all cut. So it had a sort of concert-y feel to it, which I suppose in a way led to side by side by sometime those sorts of things, how you can string them together. But uh, it, it sort of didn't make sense in a way. It didn't, it didn't make sense. So this was a chance to flesh it out and give it amplitude? Yeah, I think the rehearsal process really, the big thing was coming to terms with being American. Mm. And, and that's what takes the time in rehearsal, is our dialogue scenes, we tend to, because the English and Australian are back-footed with the language, mm. Sondheim was already written in an American language. Everything is quite fast and thoughts. So if I was to do the road you didn't take, you know, you're either a poet or you're a lover or you're the famous Benjamin Stone. You take one road, you try one door. There isn't time for any more. One's life consists of either or. One has regrets, which one forgets. That's how fast he's thinking. It's stream of consciousness. When we were doing the dialogue, that was all slow. So it took us a while in the rehearsal. I think it takes that eight weeks for us to 
bring the American dialogue exactly at the same time. The Americans drive through things at a, at a fast pace to have to get the dialogue to intermesh inter with the songs so that there is a seamless transition from dialogue into song. And it seems to me that, that that's where the time takes for English and Australian people to get that Americanness, you know, where... Does that make sense? What was that like for you, Jenny? Because, of course, Jenny recently spent however many months in New York, off-Broadway, doing a play called Linda, maybe surrounded by the Phyllises of the world in New York? <laughs> I don't know. Um, the Phyllises of the world. <laughs> uh, I actually... I don't find Phyllis as remote as she might be considered to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's great having the younger Phyllis on stage and the younger Ben and the younger Sally and Buddy because you're reminded that they weren't always these people, which is American or English, really. Uh, but I think Philip's right about the, the front-footedness. And actually, I remember thinking ahead, I must just drive through this, and he said, slow down. And so I did. I thought, gosh, he's letting me do this speech. It's going to take three <laughs> minutes to do this speech, you know. How amazing. He's, a, he's the director, right. And I slowed it down. And then as we came towards the opening, he started to say, you know, really pick up the cues there. And I said, but you want it faster? He said, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what he'd done, I realized now, was he'd helped me to understand what I was really saying and where it had come from. Mm. So all the detail was in there so that when I did pick it up, it was already embedded, which was uh, clever mm. and never ever put anyone under pressure, which is awful. If you're under pressure to quickly get the lines, you don't, it's very hard to dig through into the character, you know. But going back to New York, yes, I mean, I did a play there about a woman who was yes. angry mm -hmm. at being 55 and not seen anymore. And I think there's something of that in Phyllis. You know, she's asking herself, what's going on at this point in my life? So. <laughs> It's interesting to come from that piece to this piece mm -hmm. with some fuel already. And having been in America to have the, the song of New York in my ear mm -hmm. is quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Although I think Phyllis is from Philadelphia. Ah, yeah. right. <laughs> yes, that's a question. How much did Dominic work on and how much did it interest you to really think about the backstory of you two as a couple before you get to the party? What are you saying in the cab on the way there? Well, Do you arrive separately? Do you arrive together? Are you in a snit? All of that. He actually put us together with our younger selves mostly. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever discussed. We have our own stories. I have a wonderful backstory <laughs> for that day of what's happened that day. Um, but I don't really want to tell you because it's my secret. And uh, somebody once told me that the, uh, the best actors um, are mysterious. So uh, okay. I'm trying to be a good actor. Okay. <laughs> Not You're allowed. But it's a good what's happened during this day. And yeah, and then, f and then Ben turns I, out. I feel the same as Jane. You, yeah. you, we have different takes on it, and, and, and no one needs to know in the way that you can be married and we all have our secrets. <laughs> you don't tell everyone everything, and, and that's where the conflict or the coming together arises. And mm. Dominic was adamant that this, is, this, is, this piece is all about lies. Mm. And he, on the opening night, he gave a wonderful speech there where he, he, he said it's very important we take responsibility for those parts of ourselves that 
aren't palatable. And it's sort of what this piece is about, is really that we all have our secrets and our lies and we deny all the time. And that's where we, those lies are what cause the most damage, blaming people. And these characters have to face up to what they are mm -hmm. and what their lives have been. Yes, without when, blaming other people for it, that you, you can't go back. No. When Stephen Sondheim gave his platform just recently, mm. which I was listening to, and he was talking about the extraordinary way in this show whereby during the folly sequence, where it's most fanciful, it's also when the character is most truthful yes. about themselves, about who they are. Yeah. And I wonder if you could say something about Phyllis's folly, Ben's folly. I mean, you've got, spoiler ahead for those of you who don't know the show, you've got to have a breakdown. And there's probably always somebody watching the show who thinks, oh gosh, the poor guy's forgotten his lines. Mm. What are we gonna do? Mm. You know, so how do, how do you get through that? How does that work? Well, Dominic left me alone with it a bit. I'm not, I don't wanna talk about it too much, of course, but it's slightly different every night. Mm -hmm. It's a bit scary because <laughs> for all sorts of reasons, but my folly is really where we all put on a mask. Uh, and you know, I've suffered from mental health issues uh, for all my life, really. And no one would know because I'm smiling and <laughs> you put, put in so much energy to covering it up. And for, for me, that's what the character does, where all that finally in front of everyone tumbles away and you have to say, this is who I am. And people do it in life all the time. You know, met, mental breakdown, sometimes they say someone makes whether it's a conscious choice, you say, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm just going to let it all go and have a breakdown and go mad. Or some people come out of the closet if they're hiding their sexuality. There are great moments. Some people are reborn again, or there are moments, epiphanies in people's life. And that's, so my folly really is about where finally the mask comes down and the pretending and the charm and all that just goes. Mm. And he has to, face up to that, mm. really. Yes, and of course, Phyllis is unleashed as this wonderful song <laughs> and dance creature <laughs> who's kicking up her heels with pretty amazing abandon. Absolutely. Tell us about the story of Lucy and Jesse and how you get into <clears throat> that bit of her. Well, I think when I heard it and looked at everybody else's versions, I thought, so how can we make this um, more visceral. Why is it there and what does it really mean? And so I think you're right, she is letting go. That's probably the super objective of that number is to just let her go for a moment because she's been so contained throughout her life really since she's been with Ben. Probably a little bit before as well, just trying to get everything right, fix everything. Uh, the work I did with Zizi was about how she'd been brought up and She's a great fixer, gets everything sorted. Um, and, you know, in, in a way, doesn't allow her to ever be sort of chaotic, like, mm. like most people. And uh, so she's, she's super organized and uh, a wonderful mask as well, everything's fine. Um, so in Lucy and Jesse, she's already let off steam and could I leave you to, to Ben and sort of said everything that she needs to say to him. But there is a feeling, a sense that she still hasn't quite let go. For me, I feel that she hasn't really let go. So coming to Lucy and Jesse, having a brandy, 
getting some guys around her, telling the pianist to go for it, you know, and just telling it like it is, which is, as Philip says, not about blaming someone else, but actually going, you know what? I think my problem is. Mm. But she's probably the only, no, because Buddy does that as well, but th th we can't all come on in Loveland and go, poor me, feel sorry for me because my I have a hard life. Um, so there has to be some irony and some, um, yeah, some wit and uh, some silliness. And I think actually that's what comes into Lucy and Jesse. It's a, it's a kind of tongue-twisting, um, ironic look mm -hmm. at her inability to be I, neither of the people she's actually ever been. So she's been young, she's been sophisticated and mature, but actually she'd like to get that back and she'd like to be one thing. And I don't think that occurred to me until Bill said, so we're gonna get the younger Phyllis in. Uh, this is the meaning of the song. Because mm. I was always wondering, is it about Sally and Phyllis? Mm. Here's a little story that should make you cry about two unhappy dames. <laughs> you might be forgiven for thinking, well, yeah, it's obviously about Sally and, yeah. uh, and, and Phyllis, but actually it was good to get the reality, the, the truth of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and this okay. production brings your shadow selves, your younger selves, really right up close. Yeah. You know, they're never at a distance. And they even interact at various moments. Well, it, it, it was like that in the original, evidently, the ghosts. But Dominic made a, a conscious choice to keep the ghosts absolutely present all the time. Now, in concert versions, you ask about that, mm. they only ever appeared when we remembered them. And mm. it's not a spoiler alert, but they're here all the time. Mm -hmm. as, as they are when you're in this theatre anyway. To, be, to, be, to do a performance the other night when the audience, when Rufus came on and announced that Peter Hall had died that day, um, and Janie and I, Janie, we were in a taxi and Janie read it on the billboard and he was a very important part of your life. But mm. to have the audience applaud and give a standing ovation before the performance mm. and then to go on and, and do a performance with those ghosts in, in this room and the, the actors that have been there because it's set in a theatre. Mm. This place is haunted by those that have been here before. And a lot of those audiences didn't know that day, you know, they, they, there was a gasp. And obviously there were people who'd known Peter for a long time when this building was built. And I think Dominic decided that ghosts are, the theatres are full of ghosts. And because this story is about a theatre to be pulled, about to be pulled down, Mm. Once it's gone, what happens to those ghosts? Mm. They no longer have a home. You have destroyed that lineage. Once a theatre is put, it's a terrible thing to pull down a theatre. Mm. And once it's gone, those stories are gone. Mm. And I think he made that choice to keep the ghosts here on stage all the time. And I have to say, it's quite wonderful. And they work very hard because we don't even know they're there and they have to be present, they watch us, they've taken on some of our mannerisms. They've had to do all that work without, often without the dialogue mm -hmm. and have to concentrate so hard to come in and be present as we remember them and exit as we forget them. And you, you do feel their support, they're with you, your younger self. Mm. And, and that's what the story's about. The regret of what you, you know, you know what it's like when you look at your photos. I look at photos of my children when I go to the toilet at the urinal. They're there. 
<laughs> as you do. And while I'm and while I'm having a while I'm having a pee, <laughs> I get sad because I thought I go, God, they're so young. Is mm. life, you mm. know? <laughs> but mm. you have those photographs in different places of the room, and it, there's something wonderful and sad about it at the same time. Mm. I don't know where I'm, what I'm talking about, but <laughs> but he uh, urinals and we <laughs> and the ghosts living amid, um, amidst the present. But they're with us mm. all the time. With you. What mm. does the damage is regret? Mm. Is when you go, oh, I wish I hadn't, have done, I shouldn't have done. But that's just like saying I, I, I won, I was one off winning lotto. Mm. One off is still twenty eight <laughs> million off. <laughs> So to the idea, if I'd done that, that this wouldn't have happened, is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But we spend so much time in regret. You know what I mean? Mm. Thinking, oh, what if I didn't do this? Or what if I hadn't married that person? That's mm. stupid. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. But we waste a lot of time mm. regretting things that we did. Mm. Cancel and continue. Yeah, another dominant <laughs> thing. <laughs> Actually, it's Celia Emery. Oh, is it Celia? Yeah. Cancel and continue. Cancel and continue. Yeah. Mm. So get on with it. Erase and start again. Yeah. Mm. We'll just keep going. Yes. You mentioned this extraordinary set, which really is quite amazing. And before uh, you arrived, I was kind of looking around the back, like the characters do in the show, kind of coming out and kind of uh, poking around. And it is so extraordinarily detailed, straight through to the pile of debris in the corner. Yes. Uh, what's it like performing this show not behind a cross arch? Because every time I've seen it before, there has been kind of that safety of a cross arch, whereas here you're quite exposed. I can't imagine it being any other way, mm. to be honest. I think because we had rehearsal room one, mm -hmm. rehearsal room one is the best. <laughs> and it has its own revolve, so we got used to the revolve there. And I think it was sort of seamless coming in. I mean, obviously, we were amazed at the, the brickwork. My little boy came to do a workshop here, and he said to me, I've just seen the bricks for your set. Mm and they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> but he was really impressed because, of course, they do look heavyweight. And, uh, but there is nowhere to hide. Mm. In a yeah. cross arch, you feel like you can turn up stage and go, mm. or you, but when you're on this stage, that's it. You're, you know what mm. I mean? You're, mm, I do, yeah. And the big thing is not having the pit. So you've got no eye contact with the right. conductor. Because the orchestra's back The orchestra's there. back. We do have monitors. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's pretty scary sometimes because you you have to learn how to have a relationship and our conductor Nigel Lilly is amazing because all he has is your breathing in his ears with two speakers here so he's he's conducting really through understanding the acting process in the rehearsal room he's so very sensitive he goes with you he picks up things he's He's amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah he's and he's doing really it all just by understanding that process in the rehearsal room. Now, we haven't mentioned, speaking of presences in the rehearsal room, Mr. Sondheim, I gather he was at the very first preview. Was he also around during rehearsal, shaping it, or did he kind of let Dominic do it? He literally turned up on the day uh, of the dress rehearsal, and he sat there. And uh, we all tried not to look. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, he seemed really at home. And he talked to Dominic about a couple of things. And then I was having a chat to Dominic here, and he came right up. And I thought, I really want to say hello, but I didn't, because he mm. wanted to talk to Dominic. And then he came backstage and just chatted to us for a bit. And it was lovely. Mm. Yeah, and then after the, 
was it after the first preview? And the first preview was really our second time through in the space. Uh, and we didn't know what was going to happen. We just hoped we'd get through it, really. Yes. And the entire audience rose as one at the end, which was very moving. And then amongst all the cheers, I saw sometimes standing right there going, bravo, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Nigel, who was taking his bow, say something about Stephen Sondheim. And he, he was just, he couldn't believe, we were mm. all kind of rabbits mm. in the headlines. And then Imelda, of course, mm. took that moment mm. uh, and stood forward and said to the audience, thank you so much for being such a wonderful first audience. And please, will you join us in thanking mm. our wonderful composer, Mr. Stephen Sondheim? And we all cheered him. Mm. And uh, I said to him afterwards, I'll never forget tonight. And he said, oh, no, nor will I. He said, mm. this doesn't happen much. Mm. He said, really, we have to treasure it. Mm. <laughs> Mm. And he didn't, he didn't stay around for the opening because he's, he's sort of not interested in that in a way. Mm. I mean, what's important is, he was happy with it. is what he, he loves actors because he's a dramatist. And he understands growth and process because so much of all his works have been rewriting and working and he understands how things will grow. So it seems to me he's not necessarily interested in the end product. Mm. He knows it's on its way, you know, a few little gems came in. I got a couple of little notes here and there that were just passed on. And oh, really? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, could I please stick to the rhythm he wrote? And and in a way that's reflective, that's reflected in his work because he's never replicated. Mm. Everything is just, he's done that style then he's moved on to something else mm. and I remember we're doing Sunday in the Park with George he, he used to like the way I finished the act because I'd, I'd look at it and go all right fold up my folder and go off mm. and that's sort of what he's done with his life mm. he's finished that one right let's move on to the next so part of him was just once once he saw us on our way he was happy I think it must be very powerful for him, though, because at the age of 87, how many more productions of this mm. sort mm. of follies will he see? Yeah. You know? Well, so. I don't think we will see another one. I won't. I don't think, because it's, it can't be done at this scale, mm. Mm. Uh, commercially. Mm. I don't see how it can be. You mentioned, Janie, interestingly, earlier on about Phyllis and Lucy and Jesse, but also in general, looking at how it had been done before. And of course, the thing now with any role, we're talking about Beckett, Shakespeare, you can archive all these things on YouTube. There's so mm. many other mm. versions of yeah. Phyllis, Alexis Smith, Blythe Downer, John Maxwell, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Is that useful to you? Do you kind of put that all to one side or do you actually want to kind of see how it might be? I mean, uh, yeah, I don't always go researching what other people have done, but... Um, actually, Lucy and Jessie is quite hard to sing. Mm. I found it quite mm. hard to sing. So I wanted to look at how other women at my age had done it. Mm. And it was actually really, really helpful to listen to the tricks. Um, it was educational and it was comforting. Uh, and it was exciting to watch what other people had done. And then even more exciting to see what Bill Dima, our mm. choreographer, wanted to do with it. Uh, which was totally different to anything I'd seen. So that was uh, clever of him, you know, to come up with a new idea. Um, I don't always do it, but I, I did on this occasion. I, I thought Alexis Smith, for me, was 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It was very the original, much. of course. Yeah, I really love that. Mm-hmm. Do you do any of that sort of thing? Or? I, I I looked at the. F- Folly, actually, the mm-hmm. different versions of it, and it concerned me because I didn't quite understand how it was going to work because there is no conductor in the pit to prompt, so we had to find an, another way of doing it. And basically, I can't dance. Can't dance, won't dance, moi. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill Deemer has done a very good, very Ben job on me, which is all mask and artifice. Mm. <laughs> and I decided that the least I could do would look like the more I could do, because I saw other versions where most of the Bens couldn't really dance well either, but tried to do too much. Mm. And then it looked like the more they did, the <laughs> less it looked like they could dance. So I decided I'd just try and stand still. <laughs> Uh, yes. So, I did look at you that. You stand still with such style. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Uh, so, and, and I paired, and Bill was wonderful, because he just kept pairing it away. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. very, 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 very good like that. Because he, he tailors it to what you are capable of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're very lucky with Lucy and Jessie to have someone who can act and, say, and dance like mm-hmm. Jeannie, because sometimes that doesn't happen and it's, the dance gets cut. Yes. But... It's worth looking at it sometimes with Sontam because he's tailored the material often to the very first person Mm. who performed the role. So I know I've said it before, but that lineage is important because those roles are on loan to us from often the person who created it. And because Stephen Sontam is a is a, such a, a great teacher and he's not frightened to rewrite things and shape things and keys for certain people. It's interesting to look at that past because you can sometimes see, oh, it came about because of that performer. And you have to know where that came from. I mean, chefs do it all the time mm. in, in their cooking. They, mm. you know, they, they, they check out what other chefs have done and, and pay homage to those that came before. Painters do the same thing. Musicians always do the same thing. Stephen Sondheim is very, doesn't really like too much acclaim because he understands that he couldn't have done a lot of it without Hal Prince, or without Michael Bennett, or without Oscar Hammerstone. (coughs) Do you know what I mean? So I I sort of feel sometimes I do, if I'm in trouble, it is worth going and having a look. Mm talking about the movement, but also what's contained lyrically. I think Imelda has said, many others have talked about Sondheim as the Shakespeare of musical theater. Janie, you've done a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of it with Sir Peter Hall. Um, can you speak to Sondheim as the Shakespeare of musical theater? Does that resonate? Um, well, I don't really like comparing writers because mm. I think the good ones are totally unique. Mm. Uh, and I actually think that I have compared already in the past Rodgers and Hammerstein to mm-hmm. Shakespeare mm-hmm. in my younger days. So uh, I'm now thinking, well, do I want to just, you know, toss that into a, a comment? You know, he's, I don't know. I think he's sometime. He's, he's got his very acute vision of the truth of particularly marriage. <laughs> he seems to know about that. Um, 
and politics, having done, you know, I haven't really done enough of his work to mm -hmm. compare him, but uh, I certainly, well, I feel, and I have felt for ages, that as serious and as completely committed to a Shakespeare as I can be, I will also be to anything else. And I think Sondheim merits that because mm -hmm. it's very, very, very good writing. And the more you do it, the more you realize, you know, he also, in this, he's he's married to James Goldman, so mm. he's not he's not like Shakespeare. I, I guess we don't know, do we? Mm. But um, we think that Shakespeare wrote on his own. He wrote everything. We know mm. that sometimes sometimes writes everything on his own, but most of the time pairs up with somebody else to write. Collaborates. Collaborates. Yeah. So so it's not the same as Shakespeare, but for the amount of depth and mileage and flexibility of the language and the themes. I think it's, uh, it's genius, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I completely adore him as a writer. And what do you think after the Follies are finished, the four individual Follies, and you and Sally stand up again and the couples seem to be able to greet the new day, what do you think happens to What do you think? <laughs> Let's hear what you think. <laughs> <laughs> do Ben and Phyllis walk out the door and that's it? Or do they have another 20 years together? Personally, I mean, he told us, sometime told us, what he thought. And so that is what we play. I don't know whether you should know that no. because the thing is, we're playing what we believe is what he said and what is right. But if we tell you, then why see the play? Mm. Yes, as the lights dim, yes. <laughs> Did he like that or not? Maybe not. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, no, I think that's fair enough. There um, is an element of hope, let's just say right. that. Right. Yeah. Because hmm. that's always one of the things about this show is how much hope. The feeling in 1987 at the Shaftesbury was it was maybe sugar-coated a bit, this is much more feral. Um, and you know, there are lots of gradations in between. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. We just, uh, we hope. <laughs> mm. uh, on a uh, sort of frivolous note, because you have that wonderful song, The Radio Didn't Take, uh, just, and this is a show about, you know, reflecting. Mm. What is the road in each of your lives that you didn't take? In other words, were you not sitting here at the National Theatre starring in Follies? What might you have done with your life? Or, or you, Philip? Well, I, I mentioned depression, mental health, and, and a lot of that came about because there were so many roads I didn't take. I, and because I, I, my, my problem is I, I'm I do think I'm curious, endlessly. And if there was one thing I'd like on my grave, it would be, if anything, apart from, alas, poor Philip. Um, <laughs> or just alas. But, but to say forever curious, because I, I would be as happy doing... Sometimes this gets in the way of all the other interesting things I like to do. And that includes, like, I, I just, I love fishing, but then that, just, that involves making flies or... or 
looking at tide charts or growing orchids, all the things that I've loved doing. You know, carpentry, I just love and I miss my shed at the moment. And I would have loved to have been a chef. And archaeology interests me and anthropology and writing interests me. And the depressing thing is that I haven't got enough time to do it all. Mm. So there are many, many roads. Unfortunately, this is the one that gets in the way sometimes because it's the only way I can make a living. <laughs> you know, do you know, do you know mm, what I mean? So mm. that's my particular mm. thing. But I, I, would, I could be just as happy doing anything, to be honest. Mm. Really anything. Mm. If, if I'm interested in it, I, I commit to it. Jenny? I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't be happy, as happy as I am, doing anything else. I, I like, well, Peter Hall mm. said to me often when we were working, he'd, he'd always take my arm and walk to the kitchen to have a little chat after we'd done a rehearsal, you know, on the way to the coffee. And we'd usually <laughs> chat about whether or not he was going to have a biscuit. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was always trying to lose weight. Mm. And I'd say, oh, go on, have one. <laughs> um, and he would. But... Uh, he would, he, say, he would say, he would say, I've still got so much I have to do. Mm. There mm. are so many plays I haven't touched yet. And he said, I want to have another go at this one and that one. And you know, he, his appetite mm. for it was unquenchable. And I think I'm a bit like that. I, I do love it. I really love theatre and I love the people. I love being with the people, I love the people who come to see it, and I love the fact that we can have a conversation via a piece of work. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard work, and recently I have thought, God, <laughs> how am I going to keep going? Um, but uh, there are wonderful people around. Uh, there's Sue Laurie, who does the Alexander here, and. Um, there are physiotherapists and there's yoga mm. and, uh, you know, wonderful teachers. And I think years ago, I was actually, Peter Brooks here today, and mm. I was very lucky enough to be given a week's workshop with Peter Brook and his actors uh, at the National Theatre Studio. And my feeling about them was that even though they were in their 50s, 60s, they were still asking questions. So I learnt from that that I would like to be an eternal student. So mm. to never feel, mm. oh, I've done it now, that's, that's it, I know everything I need to know. I don't want to feel that way. There's going to be something else to learn. Mm. Oh, like that one. Mm. <laughs> that, that's Peter. And there it is. That's it Peter, is. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. Mm. I could rehearse forever, though. I think rehearsals are the most... Sometimes mm. you think, oh, do we have to perform this? Because mm. the, mm. the, the, the problem-solving, the coming together as a group of people, mm. that community coming together, because I grew up on a farm and it's the closest I ever feel to being, to being on a farm, a community coming together and making something grow and yeah. creating it and ploughing and, and doing all that, the digging and the work. And, that, f the, that community of coming in and problem solving and learning to work together as a team is mm. the most beautiful feeling. Mm. And I have to say, with, uh, unequivocally, I can say this is the most extraordinary cast I have ever worked with because it's people at the top of their game. We're all nervous every night, but to see us come together and support each other 
uh, and learn of each other. It's very, very humbling. Don't you, mm. you agree? And I think, again, Dominic did say to us, he said, listen, I have very high standards. <laughs> I, mm. He said, I, you must, he said, be careful when you start to feel relaxed with the material, ne not to let it seep in. He said, every single mm. performance has to be as if it's the one time this has ever happened. Mm. He said, that's what I expect. I don't want any less than that. Mm. And it was wonderful, mm. because that's sort of what you want to become as a performer, somebody that can, can make it happen every single time. Mm. So really, he's saying, keep rehearsing. Keep Absolutely. Rehearsing. Exactly. Every yeah. night. It's you, every night. And on that note, I think we can all agree that we're very glad the road you did take <laughs> led you to this production and this, these roles and this stage Thank and you. this afternoon. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you.